It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate for two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy The main issue here is that we have to get to the people who have already realized that their land is worth more than the dollars they can get out of it. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. And I'm Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. This week, we're thinking about the future of U.S. farming. Thousands of graduates from food studies programs across the country with generations of farmers like Blaine Snipstall, who we spoke to uh, on our Secret Ingredient episode on the peasantry. We know who's going to farm, but we don't know where they're going to do it. And so this week, the secret ingredient is land reform. To speak with us about that is Susan Aram, who is the president and co-founder of the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, or SILT. Uh, She's a former union organizer, a freelance writer, author of seven real books, uh, not just the Amazon published variety, including the classic labor pains inside America's new union movement. And Susan, it's tremendously good to talk to you from Iowa. Thanks for having me. So Susan, let's let's just jump right in. I mean, we know that the average age of... U.S. farmers is going up. At the the, the uh, 2012 census had it at uh, 56 years old, and and it's climbing. Um, why does why does America need land reform? What's wrong with just older farmers selling their their land to whoever can pay for it, and and America continuing to be great again in uh, in, in the production of food? Because every generation we ratchet the price of land up. It never goes down. Everybody knows what a great investment land is. But that means that every generation becomes less and less accessible to the generation behind them. So we have to do something to take us off this treadmill of ratcheting up land prices. Farmers need that land. That's their, that's their retirement fund. And we don't begrudge them that. But for farmers who can afford to donate or protect some of their land, we're here to make sure that that land remain affordable in perpetuity for future food farmers. So what, what is a land trust? A land trust is a nonprofit organization that holds land and holds easements. And easements, it's a lousy word. It means a lot of things. But in this case, it means a deed restriction, a restriction on the property that limits its use. Most people are familiar with natural lands, easements, which prohibit development, for example. But our easements actually prohibit development and require truly sustainable food production. So it would be possible to have a land trust that, that, that encouraged the perpetual uh, production of corn or soybeans. Um, but your easements, uh, uh, what, what, what is it that you're re- requiring people to do when you're saying that they're producing sustainably? So we have, um, we didn't reinvent the word sustainable and we also don't want it watered down. So we are using, we're allowing farmers to choose one of five third-party certifications for their food production, certified organic, certified naturally grown, biodynamic, food alliance approved, or animal welfare approved for the people doing livestock. And these are all systems that keep as much energy on the farm as possible, use as few chemicals as possible, increase soil health, increase water quality, um, and improve. And we also, of course, believe in the economic sustainability of the farm as well. And we insist that that our farmers grow food for human consumption. So this would be fruits, vegetables, nuts, wine grapes, beer hops, um, but not 
commodities. And so right now in Iowa, I'm, I'm guessing that almost all of the land is devoted to commodity production of corn and soybeans. Is that correct? Literally 99% of our cropland is in uh, commodity corn, yeah. And so you're, you're kind of facing an uphill battle. Uh, not at all. There's plenty of land in Iowa. And most of the land that we're looking for is land that corn and bean farmers don't want anyway. It's what they call rough ground. It's stuff that 24-row planters can't get into, um, but that we find very attractive for orchards, for agroforestry, uh, for rotational grazing operations. So, uh, no, actually, we've had an incredible response. And so is is the deal – so you, I'm, I'm guessing that there are a lot of young farmers out there who would like to go into the business, young people who want to farm. And you're saying that there's there's land there for them that isn't proper for these gigantic corn and soybean operations, but the the price of land is what is what is blocking them. Is that is that correct? Right. I mean, in general, right? You can't just draw a line and say uh, on this side of the line it's worth twenty thousand an acre, on that side of the line it's worth three, unless of course you have a land trust that just protected that that land on the other side of the line. So in general, what we're seeing out in the rural areas is still land prices hovering around 10000 an acre, which might be cheap by East Coast or West Coast standards, but you can only buy two or 300 or 400 acres at a time of that, which is way more than most fruit and vegetable growers could ever use. Um, or they're looking for land that's only five or 10 acres closer to town, which is where their market is, but then they're competing with developers. So that acres, those acres can be 20000 or more. Either way, these young farmers who were just trying to find a small patch of ground to grow food for their communities are priced out of the equation completely based on land. The one you guys talk about a secret ingredient. Land is the one thing nobody talks about. Well, that's why you're here today. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I would love to know, Susan, like, how did you develop this organization or what, what were the roots of this organization and what is your background in relationship to it? So I lived in Iowa in the 80s, and we watched the family farm uh, go down pretty quickly there. Uh, farmers were shooting their bankers, shooting themselves. Uh, they were miserable. We were losing as much as 80,000 family farms a month for a while there in the 80s. But I ended up moving away from Iowa, and when I came back in 2010, uh, the last nail in the coffin was going into uh, family farming. <clears throat> Confined animal feeding operations were dotting the the landscape everywhere. Almost every small farm had been turned into a big farm by being uh, sold to the guy next door. So while uh, Iowa likes to promote the fact that family farms average 350 acres, that's ownership. Operation is more like 3,000 to 3,500 acres. Um, we moved to 80 acres that I had bought in 97. My husband and I moved to that, and we started learning about prairie restoration and timber stand improvement, stuff that we'd never known. I was a union organizer and I was a writer, but I always thought of uh, this kind of work as just tree hugging and uh, stuff that only rich people could afford to do. But uh, as we got to learn more about the land, as we got it out of corn and bean and into these other things, and we invited worldwide opportunity on organic farm volunteers, wolf volunteers, to join us uh, from around the country and around the world. That's a system where you, uh, you barter a half a day's work for uh, room and board for the day. And we got to meet all these incredible young people. It was great for empty nesters, I got to tell you. And um, they, kept, they were hardworking. They were smart. Uh, they were respectful. 
they had all the ingredients of uh, somebody who could make a living growing food, except that we kept running into the same thing at dinner every night, which is they could not afford the price of land. So we started talking to Iowans at the Practical Farmers of Iowa, Women, Food, and Ag Network, and others. And it was also a great excuse for me to look up some old heroes from the 80s who I'd always seen in the newspapers and on television. They were still kicking, and they were ready for another fight. And I said, do we need to do something here? And they said, we absolutely do. And we just started talking and talking until we got enough people in a room to launch Silt. Well, one of the challenges, though, of, of farming isn't just the land, but uh, training people in how to manage the farm as a business. Um, the farms don't exist uh, in, in a context free of the capitalist economy outside. How do you train folk who, who, who get to the land to be able to navigate that uh, almost impossible divide? You know what, Raj? Getting the land is more than a full-time job. So we're going to leave all the good farmer training that's going on out there to the groups that are doing it. And there's a lot of them. There's millions of dollars going in from foundations, from the government, to fund very apt and able nonprofits all over the country to train these young people who want to farm. And thank goodness they're there because we're standing on their shoulders. If they weren't there, why would we even bother mm -hmm. trying to protect this land? But the truth is we're focused on the land because nobody else is doing it. Nobody has the audacity to go out and ask people to donate their farms or to reduce the value of their farm by more than half uh, for the sake of a few tax benefits. Um, but we're doing that because we know that if we wait, then the good, the good fruit and vegetable farmers that are out there right now, they're going to sell to developers too because none of them are making much money. They're not making a lot to put away for their retirement. And they're also counting on the land for their retirement. And their land's in the best place because it's, it's right outside those growing communities. And what's going to happen when they sell and get their retirement? The next farmer is going to have to move 30 or 40 or 50 more miles away from the market to find affordable ground. That's the issue that we bring to the table. So, you know, I give all kinds of accolades to all the organizations out there training farmers because they're doing it and they're doing it well. Mm -hmm. But we are going to provide the land security those farmers need when they're done. Um, one thing I've noticed in the past 10 or let's say 10 years, the, the price of corn in Iowa was really low at the start of the 2000s. And there was a lot of talk about diversifying away from corn and soybeans. And then suddenly, like this storm blowing through the prairie came ethanol, this, a program of uh, converting as much of the corn crop as possible into ethanol that George Bush started and uh, Obama kept going. And now 40% of the, the corn crop is going into ethanol. And it caused a huge spike in corn prices and also a huge spike in land prices in Iowa. And then it, um, this volatile situation took another turn a couple of years ago. And now we've got corn, you know, almost back down to where it was before the ethanol boom started. And I know that um, for a lot of farmers in Iowa and the rest of the Corn Belt, they're not making any money off of selling crops. They're barely covering costs if they're covering costs at, at all. And has that situation of volatility and rise and fall and the sort of current depression in prices, has that sort of uh, fueled any idea, any more ideas of diversifying away from all this corn and soybeans and sort of made your message more powerful? Yeah, let's talk about the very core of that, which is debt, right? Mm -hmm. These farmers, they go into debt for land and for machinery, and they do it because the government policies that support that, right? 
every expense with the farm is 100% tax deductible. So when corn is at 10 or $11 a bushel, which is extremely high for people who don't know corn, or, um, or I'm sorry, seven, when corn is at seven or 750 a bushel, which is extremely high, uh, the farmers are making money hand over fist, but they certainly don't want to pay taxes on that. So they go out and buy the new machinery or they buy more land. The problem is it takes 20 or 30 years to pay off that debt. And when corn drops two years later to below three, which is where it is now, they're still shouldering that debt. And that is what, uh, what hog ties them, okay? And so, yes, those are the opportune times. Those are the opportunities for us to be able to say, you know what, you can diversify your farming operation. You don't even have to be the one that learns how to do it. Just protect 20, 30 acres of your property, and we'll put a beginning food farmer on there, and you'll make 300 to 350 an acre on organic production of fruits and vegetables in rent, and you're only paying 200 right now for your corn and bean ground because corn went through the floor. And, and you will also, by the way, help get the target off your back regarding water quality because if you happen to have land near water and you put this kind of food production next to it, You've just found the voluntary private sector solution to the water quality problem because these folks aren't going to be using chemicals. They're going to be planting a lot of perennial crops. They're going to be doing all the things that we need to do to grow food in a truly sustainable way. And in the same, time, in the same breath, we're saying you're going to get 16 years of tax benefits, which farmers enjoy, without going into a million dollars of debt for machinery or land. And you're going to have two different uh, revenue flows now in terms of your income. So, yeah, this is a great time to talk to, to corn and bean farmers about this. When it goes back to seven, we probably won't be talking to them quite as frequently. And, you know, speaking of those conversations, what do you talk about? What is their response to you? And how do you go about those conversations? Where do you have them? And what do those look like? Well, you know, it's a challenge these days to find common ground. Uh, but here with this topic, I've not had a problem because we start with some of the basics. One is... Do you want your farm to stay in farming when you're gone? We can talk about the kind of farming later. You know, most people in their 50s and 60s get it that they're going to die. You know, in the 20s, you're not too sure about that. But by the time you're hitting 50 or 60, you're pretty sure you're going to die someday. And they understand that there's a legacy at stake and that they can't control things after they're gone. So if they want their farm to stay in farming, that's where we begin that conversation. Another thing most Iowans would like to see, especially our rural Iowans, is to see young people come back to their small towns and the rural communities. Well, this is labor-intensive farming, and young people are the ones who want to do it. So uh, when we explain that this is an opportunity, that there's a market out there for this kind of food, and that young people want to do it, but they just can't get on the land, uh, we can often find uh, common ground with that. Um, again, like I said about the water quality issue, uh, nobody, no farmer out here, oh, very few farmers out here are excited about this lawsuit that our Des Moines Water Works has filed against its own watershed. Um, and certainly not excited about the EPA, although they may be now, but they haven't been in the last <laughs> eight years. And uh, so uh, the idea that we can offer a voluntary private sector solution is, uh, that provides tax benefits is a, this is a language that, uh, that these guys speak, that speaks to their needs, um, that allows them to reduce their risk and monetize the benefit. Um, so, you know, we use this language and this uh, way of communicating and, um, and these common values to get the conversation started. 
And it, it's working. I mean, we don't talk to a lot of 10,000-acre farmers. We talk largely to people with acreages and to um, people who uh, have inherited 80-acre uh, parcels, 150-acre parcels, 200-acre parcels, and they're not farmers. Those are really our main audience. But we do occasionally get in front of the, the corn and bean crowd, and, and this is how we talk about it. And we don't get hostile responses. You know, everyone here is struggling with this farmland transition issue. I mean, if you have 800 acres, okay, and you're going to pass it on to your kid, there's a huge estate tax uh, liability with that because you're hitting your $5 million uh, maximum for your estate. So this is something that even those corn and bean farmers are coming to me saying, if I put an easement on some of this and still transfer it to my kid who's farming, wants to farm it organically and wants to throw an orchard on the corner, et cetera, you know, can we have that conversation? Absolutely. So there's lots of places where we can where we can uh, talk to these guys. And what what are what are some of the responses that you get to this? You know, like what are, what are people saying in if they if they don't really want to get rid of it? What I'm imagining is they say they say, well, I could make more money off of it doing this, you know, or mm -hmm. the the notion of like leaving it to my family or making sure it's farmed. I'm I'm. I'm no longer interested in that. Or my kids have gone and they've they've moved to, to New York. I don't have anybody here. And so really, I just want to get the most bang for my buck. I don't care. Is is there any of that? Oh, yeah. Those are the folks we don't bother talking to. I mean, the <laughs> truth is that, I mean, I mean, those are not the folks that we're talking to. And and I say that if I'm standing up in front of 300 people, I say, if there's anybody here who needs to who needs to make and wants to make top dollar off of your farm ground, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the people who, are, who can afford to leave a legacy, who can afford to think in terms of transitioning their land out of the top dollar commodity that they can get for it. Um, but you know, there are other possibilities. There's the, the, the scenario where there's a 500 acre farm up for sale. The kids are gonna get hit with, uh, or let's say the folks are gonna get hit with uh, capital gains tax out the wazoo because they've owned that land for 40 years or maybe longer. And we say to them, look, you're going to pay capital gains tax. You hate paying taxes. So why not carve off the farmstead and 30, 40, or 50 acres um, and donate that to us? And we will make sure that your old farmhouse that you raised your kids in um, will stay intact. We'll have a young family in there. And you'll have this crazy good tax benefit to offset your capital gains. And everybody wins. Your neighbor gets the 450 acres he wanted to add to his corn and bean operation. And the, the people in the family who care about the memories in that house get to keep the house standing. This is the biggest problem in Iowa. You drive by places, you see driveways going into cornfields. Well, there used to be homesteads, there used to be farmsteads. And now they're just cornfields because they got plowed under to become corn. And this is a way to solve both those problems. So there's lots of different ways. Another response I got, which was much more fun, was a woman who called me a couple of months after we were in existence. And I just answered my cell phone. Hi, this is Susan. And she said, you are the answer to all my problems. <laughs> I've been looking for you for 20 years. Where have you been? I began, I began to think she thought she was called a dating service, right? <laughs> and I said, what? Okay, um, so what's going on here? You do know you called silt, right? Yes, of course. I have 30 acres and there's no way on God's green earth I'm letting my neighbors get their paws on my land. And she had, had an oak savanna and a, a beautiful rotational grazing 
operation she, she and her husband had set up. They had just paid off the debt on the land. They were just about to live their dream, and he got brain cancer. Mm-hmm. She proceeded to nurse him to death for the next 18 months with her neighbors banging on her door every other month saying, oh, we'd love to take this land off your hands. You're going to have a lot of medical expenses. You're probably going to need money. Uh, just sell us your land. And this woman is dead set on donating this farm to Silt. So we get responses across the board. Talk to us about the people who get the farm. How, who, what are they like? And how, how, do you, how do they come to you? Well, so far it's just been word of mouth because, you know, we haven't been focusing on that. We have three farms now. And we have a few more in the queue for next year that I'm pretty confident about. And the first one um, happened to be a, neighbor's, a neighbor, a next-generation farmer of uh, the 53 acres that we, we received uh, in western Iowa, just outside of Omaha. And these folks are probably in their early 40s. They have a young family. They're both working day jobs. One's a school nurse. Uh, One works at the energy company, I think. And they have been, ever since she was pregnant with their last child, and there were some concerns about the health of the child, um, and the doctor said, what have you been eating lately? Everything went to organic. The whole operation went organic. And um, rotational grazing operations are very labor-intensive. And these folks are holding down these two-day jobs plus raising three kids who, of course, are helping with the animals. But they needed more ground, and they are surrounded by corn and bean. So they, uh, when they learned that we had this 53 acres in corn and bean but we wanted to transition it to organic something, they said, we'll put it in organic perennials because we need the hay. So they've come on and done that. They're very excited to be Silt's first farmers. They helped uh, host one of our showcase days, and they walked everybody through the property, and they're planning to put goats in the oak savanna and get it cleaned up because there's a lot of brush in there. Um, And I think they're finally looking forward to the day when one of them or both of them can quit their day jobs and just farm full-time. And they're really hoping to do it before the kids grow up and are gone because it's a great time, you know, for these kids to be growing up in this farm. Uh, the most recent farm we, we got, we just celebrated last week, is 22 acres in northeast Iowa. And there's a young couple moving up there who already have 600 shiitake logs inoculated. If you know anything about mushrooms, you have to cut the tree fresh and inoculate it with the mushroom you want. You can't just lay it on the ground and let any old mushroom take over. And they have inoculated 600 shiitake logs, and they're very excited about placing them Um, standing up in the woods on this 22 acres. There's 10 acres of woods. And then starting their vegetable operation in the prairie that this man has been restoring for 20 years. And the challenge is going to be how do you plant and grow vegetables in that land without destroying the soils that were just getting rebuilt? But I'm confident that they're going to do it. And they're going to do it with a very affordable lease, uh, something much cheaper than they would have found anywhere else. So they're pretty excited. And the man who donated the land still lives there. It's called a reserve life estate. He lives there until he's done with it. Um, But he's a retired carpenter. And he said, you know, for the right couple, I'd just build a new house for somebody by the end of next next, uh, summer. (laughs) So, I mean, it's a pretty sweet deal for for the right people. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times rotational um, grazing. And I wonder if you would Mm -hmm. talk us through what that is and contrast it with the way animals are typically raised in Iowa. Right. I know you've written about this a little bit, Tom, but uh, so it's called mob grazing or, in, or in, uh, rotational grazing. And you move the animals around uh, in different paddocks uh, frequently throughout the day or throughout the week. Uh, and 
preferably we like to stack enterprises, as they say, have a, have different kinds of animals. Joel Salatin has really uh, nailed this one and, and talked about it all over the country and in his books. Um, but you have different kinds of animals, and you have them moved frequently. And the way that they chew, the uh, grasses that they prefer, the, beat, the, the their hooves beating up the ground, uh, their manure, all of this variety and diversity uh, hitting the grasslands at, at, in this series of of grazing experiences over the course of the summer help actually grow the grasslands and it helps improve the the forage. So um, it is labor intensive. You have to create the fencing operation so that it's not too labor intensive and then you have to move the animals and make sure they're okay. So it's not something where you can just take off for Florida for three months and come back and expect anything to still be there. And that's why really it's the younger generation that tends to be the ones that prefer to do it. It's it's just imitating the prairie from, you know, thousands of years, right? All the different animals and everything trouncing all over the prairie, eating it and pooping on it and walking through it and stomping on it. It's just trying to imitate that system, but in a way that where we can harvest the meat off of it. Right. And, and Iowa is also famous. It's unfortunately even more famous for its massive scale hog operations where, where the hogs are completely indoors and concentrated into a few counties and... So it's a sharp contrast to the way that meat is normally grown there. Right. I mean, the argument from the industry is that it's not efficient to have your cows growing, uh, you know, growing their meat out on the fields when you can do pack them all into a, um, a stockyard or into a confined animal feeding operation. And, I, you know, I suppose it's not as efficient. Um, but the incidence of um, MRSA and other antibiotic resistance and disease and uh, 30,000 or 50,000 or 300,000 animals at a time having to get killed because of these things uh, running rampant through their operations, that doesn't happen on rotational grazing operations, you know. It just doesn't. Uh, the animals are healthier. They're happier for whatever that's worth. And uh, and the soils and the waters are all healthier too. I'm, I'm wondering a couple of things. One is how do you, you said that, you know, you, um, you feel like you're certain about the fact that the couple will maintain the ground, you know? But what is the actual oversight for the operation? Well, as the land trust, we go out there at least once a year to visit the property and make sure everything is going well. Um, so that's our requirement. It's an ethical and legal standard that we uphold. But in fact, uh, we are in touch with them frequently. As a matter of fact, I just got an email from one of them this morning. And the landowner, the land donor, who was the previous land owner, uh, is there on the property as well. And he's watching. And, you know, I'm sure if there's any problems, he's going to call. But uh, and they have so many resources at their disposal to learn how to do this right. So we have to vet our farmers to make sure they're the right farmers for what we're doing. We're not here to talk any farmers into farming in a way that they don't believe in already. And why would we do that? There's enough people out there who want to grow food in this way that we match them up with the parcel that works for them. That certainly reduces the effort at oversight because um, we're just monitoring people who already want to be there and do what they're doing. Um, but we do get out there and visit and make sure that everything's right. And because we picked those third-party certifications to give them two bites of the apple. Next year when we come out there, we're not coming out there with soil testing equipment. We're going to ask them for their paperwork. We'll let somebody else do the testing and make sure that they're one of those, you know, they qualify for one of those certifications. And how is the, how is the food that is produced on this land 
consumed by the public? Like, where is it sold and how is it sold and who is consuming it? You know, that is another entire job that's going on out there that I know you guys are talking about, which is rebuilding the local food system, which we've allowed to disintegrate for the last 40 or 50 years or more. And uh, I give a lot of credit to the folks who are organizing food hubs, which we're using uh, quite a bit, and aggregators, um, places where the farmers can come together and do they do make their systems more efficient through distributing wholesale. So... Of course, the 53 acres in western Iowa is going straight to the animals who are, who are eating it. So uh, that's meat production. Um, and those uh, that farmer lives near Omaha, so a lot of their sales are going into Omaha. Um, the northeast Iowa location is about an hour, an hour and a half from any metro area. So that's why the mushrooms and probably some small-scale livestock operation uh, that food that can travel well, right? They're not going to be selling. They're not going to be growing raspberries, which probably wouldn't even make it the one-hour trip to to the farmers market. So, they're enlisting the food hubs. They're enlisting the food co-ops, and they are using um, the internet, you know, to to market their goods. I mean, this is the wisdom of the old married to the technology of today uh, for these young farmers, as far as I can see. Susan, the idea of water has come up a lot, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the lawsuit that you mentioned, um, but also to, to Tom's question, I mean, the, the, the pollution that's, that attends conventional agriculture, agriculture and particularly uh, confined animal feeding operations, uh, is a serious issue in Iowa. And I'm wondering um, the, the extent to which this is both a conversation about land, but it's also a conversation about water. Oh, very much so. Uh, the Des Moines Water Works suit is um, it's a lawsuit against its watershed uh, to require farmers to reduce their contribution of nitrates into the water system because the Des Moines Water Works has to pay a ridiculous amount of money to clean that water before it serves, uh, serves it to the public in De- the Des Moines area. Um, it really has been the, the, uh, the lightning bolt in the water quality debate that's just been hanging around out there for the last 30 years in Iowa and never really got any traction. Um, but this has energized it in, in a way that nothing else has. And um, the, the farmers, of course, feel under siege. No single farmer thinks that he or she is responsible for the water quality issue in Iowa. And, uh, and they certainly don't think they should be held accountable financially for that. Um, and yet our rivers and streams keep getting worse and worse. The confined animal feeding operations, they've become much more sophisticated about these sort of things. Um, the, in, the, in the early 90s, when I left Iowa, they were just coming on the scene. And my husband, Paul Durenberger, actually wrote a, a, put together a wonderful book called Pigs, Profits, and Rural Communities out of SUNY Press that, that predicted a lot of what was going to happen in Iowa with CAFOs. And uh, when we came back, of course, there it was. But one thing the industry had very successfully done was moved all the regulation and lawmaking on these uh, operations from the local level to the state level. And this is a tactic I'm sure you're familiar with. So now uh, a CAFO goes up down the road from me, and I can't do anything but go to the state legislature. The odds of me winning uh, that are pretty slim to none. And uh, they've created um, things that look like regulatory uh, requirements that are somewhat, you know, they're pretty limited. Um, So... We don't have much regulatory control over these uh, animal feeding operations. What I have noticed is that neighbor pressure can can be more effective than just about anything, at least at the moment. Um, there was a fellow who wanted to put one of these in 
not far from us, and the town, uh, the townspeople just turned out at a public hearing, and he never saw it coming. He's not a he's not a mean man, <laughs> you know. He just never realized that uh, putting up this hog barn would infuriate his neighbors, and he withdrew the application before the hearing ever started. Um, you know, we gotta we gotta understand that most people when they wake up in the morning. They don't get out of bed saying, I think I'm going to be a total jerk today. <laughs> you know, they don't. And and so we have to try to get in their heads and say, what what is it that brought them to this conclusion? These corn and bean farmers are farming this way because they know it's a way to make money. They're not doing it because they think they're ruining the earth. Really, they don't really think that. Now, there's lots of organizations out there that help convince them that they're not ruining the earth. But um, all the same, I just think we have to show a little more empathy uh, if we're going to understand the source of all these problems. Sorry, off the soapbox. <laughs> Susan, on the, on the SILT website, which is silt.org, you, you mentioned that 90 percent, <laughs> let me take that again. Um, on the SILT website, which is silt.org, you mentioned that 90 percent of the food consumed in Iowa is imported from out, out of state which is kind of a stunning fact given that most of the state is farmland. And I'm wondering if you can tell us, has that always been the case? Or did Iowa used to have a robust sort of food production, food for people to eat fruits and vegetables and, and, and meat that, you know, that doesn't come from these giant factories? And what potential do you see going forward for the state to become more self-sufficient in food? Mm-hmm. So, um, No, Iowa wasn't always this way, of course. Uh, We were the top wine grape grower at one point, the top apple producer, the top potato producer before Idaho took that from us. Um, So Iowa has been known for being able to grow good food, Um, as you're familiar with, government policies um, and uh, what some people might call market forces uh, have driven Iowa to corn and bean. Some might claim that Iowa State had a big part in that, our land-grant institution, um, and in, especially in the 70s and the 80s. So no, Iowa knows how to grow food. And uh, thankfully, with new technology, renewable energy technology, and hoop houses, which are so much more affordable than greenhouses, um, we can grow a lot of food here year-round. Um, not, you know, Thankfully, and I hope not in my lifetime, uh, lemons and oranges, but lots of leafy greens and plenty of other things. Uh, so we have that potential here. Um, trying to remember the rest of your question. Iowa is not that unusual in the fact that we're importing 90% of our food. Um, that just speaks to the system that's in place right now, nationally and internationally, in terms of food production. And by the way, people who eat organic, I mean, they really ought to look at the labels. You know, this stuff's coming from Guatemala and Ecuador and you know, it's not coming from down the road necessarily. They really need to to learn more about um, what they're eating and what system they're supporting when they pick uh, bananas, as as I've been guilty of doing. You know, I'm I'm wondering a little bit about how, if at all, because I know the project of of land reform is is m- magnificent, as you've as you've said, but um. But I'm wondering if you have any marketing strategy or campaign to address these issues with consumers, or do you have? What is your interaction like with consumers to try to convince them to buy organic products that are locally grown to change the food system? What is the conversation there, if at all? 
So um, again, that the fight to uh, to convince people to buy locally grown organic is is a fight that's being waged very well by a fair number of organizations that have been doing it for forty or fifty years, and I think it's finally gaining some traction, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, now we see these high end restaurants with their local produce, et cetera. That's all great, but the thing that no one talks about is where the food is grown, and so um, I like to tell people try to remember that. Uh, the truth is, you know, the American Farmland Trust has a bumper sticker that says no farms, no food, right? No local farms, no local food is what I try to tell people. If we're not paying attention to who owns the ground, uh, then you can kiss your marker, your farmer's markets and your food co-ops goodbye in the next two generations. They will be gone. And you will try to figure out why the food co-op isn't quite what it used to be or why the market is so much smaller than it used to be. And that's because farmers can't afford to drive three hours to sell you a tomato. And the other more efficient uh, systems will take over. So that's our main marketing message is pay attention to the ground and, um, and that we need local farms if we want to have local food. You simply just can't, you can't make that one up. You can't, you can't co-op that one. Walmart can buy, uh, and well, actually you can. Let me take that back because Walmart and Target can co-opt it. They can actually hire, they can actually buy their own land and, and hire farmers for a wage and grow local food and sell it at Walmart as local food. But as, as one of our founders, Fred Kershman, said, um, that's when farmers go from being price makers to being price takers. And that's the equation we have to watch out for to make sure that that relationship between consumer food consumer and farmer, remains personal enough that it's fair and equitable, that it's not a monopoly uh, or these invisible market forces determining what the price is. But Susan, how scalable is this? Uh, I mean, we, we everywhere wants local food, but uh, not everywhere has a silt. And even silts, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, as, as you've said already, uh, the, the, the scale of what, what, what you're doing and what, what's in the pipeline is... Uh, small compared to what's needed. How, how do you make this bigger? You know that's a dangerous, almost loaded question, right, Raj? I do. Um, you know. <laughs> but I want you to I think go it's there. The wrong, you know, I think it's the wrong question, right? How scalable is this? I mm. mean, now you start sounding like Monsanto and Syngenta and Cargill. I mean, how scalable is this? The bottom line is if we have a diverse array of, of farms producing different kinds of food, it complicates things. Economists hate this kind of thing. Bankers hate this kind of thing. Well, what are you going to grow there, and how can we predict what it's going to make next year? Well, we don't have futures on hazelnuts in Iowa, you know, so the market hates this kind of thing. It's, it, Wendell Berry loves this kind of thing. So I tell you, ask Wendell Berry how we're going to scale this, okay, because I'm not sure that's the answer. Now, if you're talking about the land reform issue, yes. and we haven't really talked about what we mean by land reform, but it's silt. We're literally taking land off the market forever. Land that gets given to us doesn't go back on the market, and that means it's no longer subject to any of those market forces, housing development or commodity corn. And on land that we have easements on, we don't own the land. The landowner retains ownership. But we restrict it in such a way that no corn and bean farmer, no developer is ever going to be able to buy it and use it because it's only for, for food production. So in these two ways, what we're saying is, like in the old movie War Games, the only way to win is not to play. And I think it is, in terms of this solution, that is scalable. I've got states, every state surrounding Iowa has contacted me about how to create a silt for their state. Um, every, there's been a farmer in every state. That's, that surrounds Iowa. 
And at the national level, we have the Agrarian Trust, which is working very hard to get off the ground, so to speak. Um, and they are hoping to be kind of a national clearinghouse for this kind of uh, this issue. Um, but it's true that, that it's an expensive proposition. So we need the people with the deep pockets. This isn't the five and dime crowd. We need the people with the really deep pockets to say that the future of the use of our land in this country is such a priority that we are willing to put millions and millions into it. And if silt is one of those places, have at it. We're waiting for you. But there's other good efforts around the country. And there's lots of land trusts around the country that are starting to take on farmland. They are beginning to appreciate the fact that maintaining land for food production is important. So the system is actually there in place. It's just going to need a little, in terms of the land protection system, it's just going to need a little tweaking, I think. Now, I'm wondering, I know that our political climate now and in recent memory has never been in this kind of place, but is there an idea of public money going into this? That there's a public interest in the kind of farming you're talking about and the kind of diversification you're talking about. You've talked about the clean water benefits. You've talked about the economic benefits of young people getting to go into farming who otherwise would not be able to do it. These are public benefits. And is there any talk of, you know, public money going into it to say we're going to secure a percentage of farmland in Iowa or in other agriculture-centered places like that? Well, again, we have to kind of look for the overlap, the Venn diagram here. There are 27 states in the country that do have public funds to protect farmland, uh, the purchase of agricultural conservation easements. So these are, and the American Farmland Trust has great resources on this, but 27 states where they've decided that it's worth taxing their people to create a fund that pays farmers the difference between the value of their land if they sell it for development and the value of their land if they keep it as a farm. So they'll pay farmers the difference so that it'll stay in farm ground. And that's a, that's a permanent solution. That's not something that changes once they sell their property. So there is that. Um, to speak as specifically as our kind of farming and protecting our kind of land, you know, we're kind of new. We're, this is a new idea. We're, like I said, we are standing on the shoulders of giants, and we are collecting all the wisdom of, of the land reform movement and the local foods movement and the sustainable agriculture movement, and we're trying to, to pick the best of all those things around the country and tailor it to Iowa. Um, but one of the places we borrowed from is the PCC Land Trust out west, um, Seattle maybe? Yes. Washington. Um, they're doing amazing work out there, and they were one of our standards. They said, look, we have these kinds of easements. These, these stand up in court. Okay, then we knew we could do it. Um, but in terms of public resources for local food or whatever you might call sustainable, not that I'm aware of, but probably something's going on in California or New York. Do Is you guys know? Well, in, in New York, there's the um, New York State uh, Student Loan Forgiveness Program, um, for which if you went to a state college and got your loan in a particular way and committed to farming for a while, um, will forgive a loan that then you 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 know you might use the savings to to to, to pay for land, um, and I think a dozen or maybe two dozen people uh, are eligible for that. Um, but in terms of actual land purchase, I'm I'm. I'm a little clueless. But I'm wondering if, is there any relationship between how certain lands in Iowa, like the Luss Hills, for example, or some of the effigy mounds are preserved and the way that you're going about preserving the land through farming? 
Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I understand from the Natural Land Trusts that there was um, an opportunity for the Lust Hills to become a national park or something or have some kind of national designation a few years ago. And politics or something got in the way and it didn't happen. But the the Nature Conservancy and Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation are both very active in the Lus Hills to protect them. Um, for folks who don't know, that's a geological formation that's only in Iowa and China, right? Um, and the fact that we can bring nature-friendly farming to the Lus Hills has actually been greeted with an amazing amount of relief and success. Uh, our first farm is there, and I go to the prairie seminars there. People come up all the time and say, oh, you mean we can grow something besides row crops on these beautiful hills? Because they can almost watch the, wa- the soils washing away in mm-hmm. the spring. Uh, so we've actually had a, a very good reception out there. I, I spoke at the Lus Hills Prairie Seminar last year with a man named Kim Alexander, who's running a big rotational grazing operation just south of Sioux City, which is where these hills are. And um, and people are getting it. I, I wasn't sure they would because, you, you know, farm really is a four-letter word. And out here, you know, it's loaded. But uh, they are getting it that we can do this nature-friendly farming in these beautiful areas. People aren't going to stop growing food where they're, you know, they're not going to stop farming, just like they're not going to stop building parking lots and apartment buildings. How can we figure out a way to secure as much of the land as possible for future generations for local food production and healthy food production in the context of all of that going on, so that that's not the only conversation that's happening. The main issue here is that we have to get we have to get to the people who have already realized that their land is worth more than the dollars they can get out of it. And you know, I thank Wendell Berry and all those who came before who have been raising this issue for decades. But they are out here. They they are not just thinking about the inheritance not just thinking about cashing out. They're thinking, they're looking at the land in a new way. They're saying, wow, my husband farmed this for 50 years. He took care of us. He got my kids through college. That's all wonderful. But he's gone now. And is there another thing we could do with this land that might be even better for the land and for the next generation? Those are the kind of people we're speaking to. And they're excited and they're relieved and they're grateful that an organization like ours is around. And I know, as I said, in other states, they either have organizations like us or they're talking about creating one. So I encourage people to to jump in on that because it is an expensive, courageous effort. And there are plenty of nights I lie awake uh, wondering what the heck I got us all into. But it's working. People are responding. We have more than 4,000 acres of landowners talking to us now about protecting their land in Iowa. That would grow a lot of food. It doesn't grow a lot of corn. And ethanol, but it grows a lot of food. So I just I want people to feel inspired that there is something you can do, even in today's political climate. Um, and there are tax incentives that passed under the Obama administration that make it easier for people to do this, to drop the value of their property. Um, and so it's a conversation we can have across all party lines that will secure the future food security in our in our country, in our state. Well, it's so empowering, and I'm, I'm, thank you so much for joining us thanks today. Thanks so much, Susan, and th- thanks for, for squeezing us in at the last minute as well. Oh, I'm glad to do it. I got to send my husband to the Rotary Club in Tipton, so I think I got the good <laughs> end of the deal. So, thank you, thanks, Susan. Guys. Thank thanks you for so giving much. Us some, uh, really appreciate it. Take care. Take, Take care. care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Susan Aram is the president and co-founder of the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust and author of Labor Pains, Inside America's New Union Movement. We spoke to her from the studios of Iowa Public Radio in Iowa City, Iowa.
Coming up on our next edition of The Secret Ingredient, Raj Patel, Tom Philpot, and I will revisit a conversation we had with the late anthropologist Sidney Mintz. It's an unedited version where Mintz talks about the development of anthropology and so much more. You can check out all of our conversations at thesecretingredient.org or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. David Alvarez is our engineer, and for KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. Mm